This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 20th of April. The increasingly severe impacts of climate change can make the future seem daunting. But mankind has solutions to tackle the problem, according to a recent report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. The report also stressed that global emissions need to start falling immediately if the world is to limit the damage from wilder weather and rising sea levels. With us today is one of the leaders of the report, Professor Jim Ski from Imperial College London. Thanks for joining us today on the show, Jim. Hi, nice to see you, Audrey. So Jim, you are a co-chair of the working group that produced the latest IPCC report. Could you give us a sense of why this report is so important and how we can draw some hope from it? Well, I mean, just to say, this is the first uh, big IPCC report on mitigation or reducing emissions that's come out actually since 2014. And it comes out at a particularly important time because it's almost midway between COP26 in Glasgow, uh, you know, where there was they were the Glasgow Pact was signed and, and there was a bit of progress diplomatically. And the next COP, COP27, which will take place in Egypt in November this year, uh, you know, where uh, really countries are being asked to step up and improve uh, the ambition of the pledges that they have made. So it's coming out at a really quite critical time in the diplomatic process, which is why I think there's a lot of uh, attention from it. Now, I know that, you know, our other colleagues in IPCC who look at the physical science of climate change and the possible impacts of climate change can send us quite despairing messages and quite rightly too, because there is a lot to be worried about. But what I think is interesting about our report is that for the first time, it's starting to show some signals uh, that human beings are actually starting to make a difference in terms of shaving off some of the level of emissions that growth that uh, we have seen. So we see various signs there in terms of technological change, policy implementation that gives us some signs of hope, but believe me, a long, long way to go. So let's dig a little deeper into the report. Could you give us some specific examples, say urban design, reforestation or green buildings and industry that can lead to specific emissions cuts? Yeah, I mean, I think the the really big ticket items that the report identifies would be, first of all, uh, you know, taking the carbon out of electricity supply and renewable energy would be probably the, the biggest part of that. And we may go on to that, but issues about what's happening with wind and solar energy have really been quite spectacular and they can contribute an awful lot more. If you're going to make uh, electricity pretty much carbon free, then it makes more sense to use electricity uh, for final demand. So another big theme we've got in the report is electrification uh, of economy, making big contributions. And electric vehicles are a very obvious way there, but that, you know, certainly in places like Europe, uh, there's also the possibility of using electricity much more for heating. And then the other big ticket item that's very obvious is energy efficiency, uh, actually, which, you know, which there's always a lot of potential. But as your question suggests, David, I mean, we look at a much, much wider set of uh, of options in this report than perhaps we have done in the past. 
So when, for example, you get to things like in cities, which are going to play a much more important role in the future as more and more of the human population live in cities, the question of how you design cities so that people, for example, could live closer to the to the places where they work, uh, the use of public transportation rather than private transport, making cities walkable or cyclable can all make a difference. And the other thing about urban design is we emphasize also the importance of green spaces and using water, quite frankly, a lot more efficiently in, in cities, because that also helps with adaptation. It will help to cool cities down. And what would be the role of technology that sucks carbon dioxide out of the air, such as you know direct air capture and so forth? Yeah, for, for, for the first time, I think, in this report, we pay an awful lot more attention to the role of what we call carbon dioxide removal, rather than sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. Because sucking carbon dioxide out of the air implies really quite an engineered solution to it. And carbon dioxide removal covers a whole spectrum of different approaches, some of which may be, may be more on the sort of the biological side. There are ways of managing agriculture and soils, for example, so that soils take up more carbon. And this has other benefits in terms of soil fertility or ad- adapting to climate change. So it's a kind of a win-win-win uh, kind of option. And reforestation or afforestation are also options that help to take carbon dioxide out of the air. But we do also, you know, as your question suggests, uh, actually place a bit of emphasis on other more engineered techniques like direct air capture of carbon dioxide. And these are technologies that are very, very much in, in the pilot stage, you know, at the moment. So they could be some kind of time in the future before these could be brought up to scale if you can actually bring the costs of the technologies down to something that is reasonable. And I would expect most of the carbon dioxide removal options that can be taken up in the short term that are available to us already are probably more on the biological side than the engineering side, uh, given the, you know, the maturity of the approaches and the technologies that are involved. But we do pick up on these because obviously climate change is a long-term problem. So we do need to put in place the R&D and the demonstration that allows us to bring these technologies forward in the longer term as well. It's not all just about what you can do in the short term. So Jim, in discussions on the green transition and cutting emissions, there's often a lot of talk about cost. But the report also talks about how climate solutions can help governments meet developmental goals, whether it's improving lives and livelihoods. Can you just tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there are many ways in which we spend a whole section of our summary for policymakers talking about the interactions between uh, climate change mitigation and other aspects of development, and also climate change adaptation. And maybe just uh, just a few examples to sort of bring a, a bit of life to it. For example, I think in many Asian cities, air quality is is a very important issue. And almost all of the measures that uh, address climate change, whether it's you know getting renewables into power generation or moving over to electric vehicles rather than vehicles using uh, petroleum-based uh, fuels, will produce huge impacts on air quality. In fact, maybe even a bigger a bigger motivation uh, than than the climate change improvements as well. So that's a, that's one particular area where there's manifest you know kind of benefits in terms of air quality, people's health. If you switch it to an entirely different kind of context, it may be in places like, for example, West Africa, that the adoption of agroforestry techniques uh, can actually help you to uh, you know, sequester carbon in growing trees 
while bringing benefits to farmers in terms of the livelihoods they have. So we have a, a whole massive table uh, in, in the report that details all these kind of linkages between climate change mitigation and each of the 17 sustainable development goals for the UN and just sort of draw out whether there are benefits uh, to these other sustainable development goals or whether there are risks. And the big conclusion that for the most part, there are benefits to be achieved there. It obviously depends very much on local specific circumstances, but the broad picture is beneficial. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, as the report makes clear, a lot of solutions are already being deployed and costs have plunged for some green uh, technologies such as solar panels, wind turbines and batteries. But now I think... Um, things really do need to scale up to really make a difference and and to cut emissions, if that's correct. Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, mean, we just flag up the fact that, you know, since IPCC last produced its report, uh, the cost of solar panels has come down by 85%. The cost of batteries have come down by 85%. And that has been reflected in a big take-up of these technologies in the market. On the current place we've got to, the last time I looked at the statistics, I think about 8% of global electricity came from wind and solar energy, which is something that nobody really expected. The rate of growth has been fantastic. For solar panels, maybe something like 50% year-on-year globally. So the growth is really fast. And what the report is really saying in some of these ambitious scenarios for getting emissions down, basically by 2050, electricity generation around the world would essentially need to be carbon-free if you were going to be in the truck, it, you know, it could be very, very cost effective way of doing it. So you would see uh, basically electricity systems that were mostly non-fossil. I'd say that fossil may still play a role for balancing out the system in some places with, uh, you know, the bulk of generation coming from renewable energy, probably dominantly. And for those countries that choose to do it or can do it, a bit of nuclear or fossil with carbon capture and storage. But for all the solutions outlined, uh, the real sting in the tail is that global greenhouse gas emissions need to start to fall immediately and drop significantly by 2030. But that is looking pretty unlikely. Well, I mean, just to say, David, this is the point where the scientists really hand o- over to the policymakers. I mean, we've been asked the question by the policymakers, what would you need to do to limit warming to one and a half degrees? I mean, th- this is very much the question that came out of COP26. We have provided the answer to that question is that emissions would need to drop almost immediately. I think we said global emissions would certainly need to peak by 2025 and we need to get on a very rapid downward track. And really it's up to governments to decide what to do. I mean, in the report, we set out a range of uh, options and measures that could reduce global emissions by half by 2030, which is what it would take you to get onto a pathway that took you towards limiting warming to one and a half degrees. Half of these measures cost less than about $20 per tonne of carbon dioxide. And some of them are actually beneficial in their own right, even if climate change did not exist. And that includes some of the renewable energies now, which can compete directly with fossil fuels. So I think one of the messages we got for governments is that, you know, the options are there on the table. As well as that, we have demonstrably effective policy instruments that can deliver these kind of things. And it's in a sense, it's up to the political will to take that on 
and actually follow through on it. So it is just we are clinging on to a straw in terms of one and a half degrees, but it is still just, just possible to do it if governments are prepared to come forward and use the tools that are available to them. So Jim, now that IPCC has published its most updated assessment report, um, as you say, the science is clear and the ball is in the policymakers' court now. Would you say this year is key on whether the world will avoid exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius? What are you hoping to see before COP? Yeah, I think actually this year, uh, you know, in the run up to COP27 is actually quite critical because, you know, in the sense politicians have set themselves a deadline for COP27 and uh, we will need to take a look at the ambition of any enhanced pledges that have been made by the time we get to Sharm el-Sheikh in November this year. It will be difficult to see how I would guess how you keep the pressure on beyond that if the pressures, uh, if the pledges don't actually add up to the level of ambition needed to limit warming to one and a half degrees. So I think this this year really is quite critical. And is there anything that you are hoping to see before COP27? I mean, there's so many net zero targets. Are we hoping for more action plans? Uh, well, it's a very important to make. Uh, it is one thing to make a pledge And it is another thing to turn it into real policies and real action on the ground. And if I'm honest, I would be very, very much more concerned about what you might call the implementation gap, which is to see how you actually fill in that gap between the pledges and the aspirational ambitions that politicians set and what they actually put in the statute book, what rules and regulations they put in place, on how businesses and ordinary people respond to these, because that's the key to it. It's only if businesses, ordinary people respond and take action, you know, organised, enhanced, herded like cats by politicians to push them in the right direction, that we're actually going to see the difference. So thank you so much, Jim, for joining us today and explaining about the latest IPCC Working Group report to us. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jim. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.